You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. Chapter of the book of Exodus, one of the most significant chapters recording what I suppose to be the most well-known event in the life of Israel, the time when God parted the waters of the Red Sea and they went across on dry ground. Then he closed up the waters upon the armies of the Egyptians. In just a few moments, we're going to stand together and we'll read aloud verses 30 and 31. This morning, I want to speak on this subject, how to sever the grip of a sinful past how to sever the grip of a sinful past. Have you ever noted that there are some folks who seem to uh, have an unusual, almost an uncanny ability for overcoming sin in their life? It seems that when they come to know Jesus, that they utilize all the power he has made available to them. Immediately, there are things in their life they just cease doing, things that were sinful, things that were harmful, things that were destructive. They just cease doing. And then as the years go on, it seems that as God brings to their mind specific things in their life which indicate sin and rebellion, that they have this unusual ability to overcome sin. It seems that the things of the past have no grip on them whatsoever. On the other hand, have you noted with interest and concern that in the lives of many Christians, there doesn't seem to be that ability. They're quite confident that they know Christ as their Savior. Maybe you would describe yourself as one of these people. You know for sure if you died, you're going to heaven. But there are things in your life that you are now struggling with, and to be perfectly honest, you have been struggling with those issues for years. And you've asked the Lord on more than one occasion, Lord, why can't I get victory over this sin? Why does this sin, rearing its head again and again, seem to be like a bully that constantly beats me into submission? Why is it that no matter how many resolutions I make, no matter how many times I come to the altar and say, Dear God, forgive me. I know that is wrong. I want to be be set free from that sin and that kind of behavior. Why is it that you just cannot seem to shake it? It may be something in your thought life. It may be some habit that is destroying you. It may be uh, a matter of integrity. It may be an attitude. Recently, the Lord caught me in one of my favorite sins. And uh, uh, I, I was in the middle. It was not a sin that's going to destroy my family. It was not a moral sin. But uh, as a matter of fact, it is something I've struggled with for years. It has to do with a specific attitude at a specific time. And usually that time occurs in my car and in traffic. (laughs) And invariably, the Lord, in order to point out to me that this still is resident within me, he puts in front of me somebody who obviously is practicing for a Shriners parade. And... um, You know, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't practice road rage. Don't, don't, you know, don't, don't, that's not it. I don't roll my window down, shout things, and make obscene gestures, you know. But, but, but I do practice some thoughts at that time. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, man, you know, I could be home 15 seconds earlier if this guy would just hurry up, you know. And, and the Lord just arrested me. And I know you don't have that problem. 
But the Lord arrested me in the middle of that sin and uh, basically said to me, you know, Tom, uh, this is a problem, and I have approached you about it again and again and again. It has to do with patience, or rather, the sin of impatience. Uh, you're a type A personality, which is no excuse for sin. And uh, anybody who says it is, is wrong. I mean, the Lord was just telling me all these things while I was sitting there. You know, uh, don't, don't confuse this with being an aggressive, go-getting kind of a guy. This is impatience. And this is wrong. This is a sin. And I thought to myself, Lord, why can't I deal with that as I should? My secretary, Karen Majors, gently reminded me of that this week. Uh, something that she said. I thought to myself, why... Why do I wrestle with that? Lord, why can I, I not get victory over that? And then the Lord reminded me of this. He said, if you will listen to the sermon you're going to preach on Sunday morning, you might get an answer to your problem. And so while I'm up here, I'm preaching with one foot on top of the other. I'm listening to my own sermon. Believe you me, I want to sever the grip of a sinful past, don't you? Sure you do. Of course you do. And there are bound to be some things in your life that you repeatedly engage in, think about, do, practice. And the Lord has reminded you of that. And yet, as of this morning, you have yet to sever the grip of a sinful past. Well, that's the subject this morning. Now, before we stand together and before we read the passage of Scripture, which is the text for the message this morning, let me remind you that the history of Israel is not only their history, it is our example, our illustration. Now let me give you a reminder right straight from the book of Hebrews that these things are an example for us, the Bible tells us. And so when you look at their history, you're looking at the history of a believer in Christ. And we have already discovered, for instance, that Egypt represents the bondage and the slavery of sin. That's life before Christ. And then we have seen how the Passover, the shedding of the blood of that lamb, the sprinkling of it on the sides of the door and over across the top of the door, and God seeing that blood and passing over are not imputing death to the sentence, a death sentence to that house, that the Passover and the subsequent deliverance represents our salvation. That is, that by trusting in Jesus Christ alone, his shed blood for our sin because we are wicked and rebellious people. By trusting in Jesus alone, we can have deliverance. And then having been delivered from the bondage and slavery of sin, we begin to follow the children of Israel on their journey back to Canaan, which represents life in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Rest. Canaan is not heaven because there are no battles in heaven, there were battles in Canaan. The difference between, between Canaan, the battles there, and the other battles of the Israelites was that in Canaan they were fighting with God against their mutual enemies, whereas before, out in the wilderness, they were always fighting against God. And so this is a pilgrimage, you see. Now, having been delivered from the bondage and slavery of Egypt, it wasn't long before God led the children of Israel right straight up 
to the edges of the Red Sea. And what we read about in the 14th chapter of the book of Exodus is not simply historical truth, an actual account of the way that God delivered Israel from Egypt once and for all, as God said, you will see them no more again forever. But this experience is an example for you and for me in how to sever the grip of a sinful past, how to ultimately cut our ties with that which would demolish and demean and somehow weaken our relationship and our effectiveness with the Lord. Now, you have your Bible open to the 14th chapter of the book of Exodus. Look with me at verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord caused the sea to go back by an east wind all that night. And you know what happened? The waters were then divided. And we read in verse 22 how the children of Israel walked through on dry ground. Waters piled up on one side and on the other. And then we read in the following verses that the Egyptians pursued them. And that when it came time, when all the Egyptians were there in that area where the waters of the Red Sea were piled up, that God confused them. And they began to drive their chariots. The, the wheels began to fall off. And, and then God just caused the waters to come back on them. Someone said, well, this was a very shallow place. Then the greater miracle is that God drowned an Egyptian army in shallow water. It didn't happen that way. Look at verse 25, he took off their chariot wheels. They drove them heavily. So the Egyptians said, let's flee from the face of Israel. The Lord fights against them. And the Lord says to Moses, verse 26, stretch out your hand over the sea. And then what happened? The waters came back. Look at verse 28, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And so let's stand together and read aloud together verses 30 and 31. The words are up on the screen. If you don't have your Bible there with you, let's read it aloud together. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. How to sever the grip of a sinful past. Let's pray together. Father, we are trusting in these next few moments that you will show us how to do something that is so practical, that is so important for every true believer in Christ. For Lord, it seems that though we have trusted in you and received you by faith as Savior and desire to follow you as Lord of our lives, that so often we become aware that in our lives are things which are sinful, things which you died on the cross to overcome, and yet we somehow have admitted them again into our lives. Oh, Lord, show us how to sever the grip of a sinful past. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. Keep your Bible open. You're going to need it. Exodus chapter 14, as we think on this subject, how to sever the grip of a sinful past. I want to mention four things to you. These have been of such help to me this very week, as I said, putting them into practice in my own life. And I want to encourage you to begin practicing each of these four things which I mentioned to you this morning. They are right straight out of the Scripture from an account which God specifically says He has given us as an example so that we would know how to live our lives. What should you do? Number one, rejoice 
in the certainty of your salvation. Rejoice in the certainty of your salvation. Look with me at verse 8 of chapter 14. An interesting verse. It says, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out exalting. Literally says, the children of Israel went out with a high hand. That is, with hands lifted up in rejoicing and in praise unto the Lord. For he had delivered them once and for all from the bondage and from the slavery of Egypt. You know, the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme when he writes to the Christians at Ephesus and says in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10, he says, when you come to this battle, when you are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in the atmosphere, rulers of the darkness of this world, he says, when you come to that moment, it's time to put on the whole armor of God. And he begins by saying the whole armor of God requires, first of all, the helmet of salvation. I don't know how often you thank the Lord for the fact that he has saved you, but if you can say this morning that you are truly his child, that you are a born-again child of God, you came to a point of repentance and you trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone as your Savior, and you know that Christ is alive in you, you should take time, any time, to rejoice in your salvation. Now, some years ago, I was uh, called by a lady in Africa whose husband was in dark depression. And she said, Tom, I don't know what to do with him. He said, she said, he just seems to be failing in every area of his life. And could you come down here and visit with us? And I remember going to that home. And they lived in an area that was so tense. And there was, there was so much at stake, sometimes life or death at stake in, in the way they conducted their affairs. It was a, a place where hostilities raged still. And uh, as I visited with this family... I began to be aware that uh, it had been a long, long time since he had even looked at that passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 6. And so I said, look, why don't we kneel down and let's just dress in the whole armor of God. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, let's begin in prayer by thanking God for our salvation. I thank the Lord. I recall how it was when I trusted in Jesus as Savior, what had happened in my life since. His wife prayed the same prayer. Lord, thank you. I remember when it was that someone introduced me to Christ, and I remember what's happened since. And then we got over to him, and he began thanking the Lord for his salvation. Almost immediately, you could sense a great measure of that depression lifting. And as we went on to dress in the rest of the armor, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the shield of faith, as we begin to take up each piece of armor, you could just sense the cloud of depression lifting. Now, here is a key truth. I hope you'll write this down someplace, and it affects many people here this morning, I'm sorry to say. You see, the major cause of continued failure before sin is the absence of genuine salvation in the first place. A major cause for continued failure before sin 
is the absence of salvation in the first place. Now, here's what I mean by that. and Maybe I can illustrate it better than I can explain it. Some years ago, I came back from youth camp and we'd been at Falls Creek. And at Falls Creek, one of the young men who had been a bright and, and energetic follower of the Lord. I mean, he had always been involved in our youth program, very involved in church, grew up in the church, had made a decision very early in life. He couldn't remember anything about it, but just remembered, you know, that he said the right things and was baptized. And, and uh, God brought him under conviction at that youth camp. And he began to realize that there had, never, there had been a decision, but there had never been a point where he had repented of sin and trusted in Jesus. And yet he had been baptized, he'd grown up, his family had said, oh, you're Christians. His friends had said, oh, yeah, we remember when you were baptized. He had never truly been born again. And so at that camp that year, he trusted in Jesus Christ. And when he stood up to make his, give his testimony, as some of our young people will tonight, when he stood up to share his testimony, he said, you know something, trying to live the Christian life without really being a Christian is like trying to get clean in a bathtub that has no water in it. He said, I really didn't know the difference. And I'm afraid there are people here this morning, you know, you look back and you say, well, I just always assumed I was Christians or my parents told me I was a Christian. Well, I joined the church. Doesn't that make me a Christian? Or I believe everything the Bible says. Doesn't that make me a Christian? When the truth of the matter is, you would be hard pressed to remember where it was that you truly under deep conviction that you were a sinner repented of sin and trusted Jesus as your Savior. And you're going on trying to live a Christian life. You're ardent, you're involved, you're eager. You keep coming to church and you, you want to be a faithful Christian, but yet you seem to be absolutely powerless over sin. You know why? Because you are powerless. And one of the reasons many people fall so constantly before besetting sin is that they have truly not been born again. So the first thing you need to do is rejoice and the certainty of your salvation. If you know Christ is your Savior, rejoice in it. If you do not know, trust Him, receive Him by faith as your Savior this very day. The children of Israel took time to rejoice in their salvation. All right, here's the second thing you must do. Let's look at it. Listen earnestly to God's clear instruction for your behavior. Now, notice I didn't say listen for God's clear instruction for your behavior. Because you don't need to, the question is not whether he is giving you instruction. It's not listen to see if God is saying something. No, God is saying something. God has said some things regarding your behavior. So listen earnestly to God's clear instruction for your behavior. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. God gives instruction. The Lord says to Moses, why do you cry unto me? Speak to the children of Israel that they go forward. You lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea, divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. This is my clear instruction. Now look this way. I want to share with you a key for overcoming sin in your life. And I would encourage you to just remember this because it will do as much as anything I share today to help you. Look at it. They're going to put it on the screen for you. You see, filling your heart. 
with the Word of God. And I realize this sounds redundant, but I really am doing it deliberately so that you'll remember it. Filling your heart with the Word of God is an absolute essential for victory over sin. Filling your heart with the Word of God is an absolute essential for victory over sin. I love that verse in Psalm 119, verse 11, where it says, I will hide thy word in my heart that I may not sin against thee. I will hide it in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The Word of God, listen, the Word of God is like a compass. Now, you get lost out in the woods, and it's overcast, and you forget which side of the tree the moss grows on, you're going to be hard-pressed to find your way out of the dense, deep forest. You have no compass. You don't remember which direction it was that you came in. You don't know how to get out. You might wander around and stumble out sometime, but the truth of the matter is the shortest route out of your predicament is going to be found if you have a compass. Now listen, when you hide the Word of God in your heart, what are you doing? You're ensuring that there is in your heart a moral compass so that the moment anything happens, you can immediately discern, is this on course? Am I on track? Am I on target? Is this where God wants me to go? Is this what God wants me to do? One of the reasons that we have in our church the Awana program for children is because the Awana program helps them memorize vast portions of Scripture, hundreds of verses of Scripture, if they stay in it through, their, through the, the entire period. Why do we want to do that? Because you see, that becomes like a compass in their heart. Why should you as an adult be involved in memorizing Scripture? Why should you as an adult be involved in reading the Word of God every day? For you see, without it, you are in a dark forest without a compass. And events happen, and choices are demanded, and direction is taken, which can be so far from the Word of God that it only carries you deeper into sin. I cannot tell you the number of times that uh, for some reason or the other, perhaps uh, someone calls from the hospital and um, maybe it's two or three o'clock in the morning. I get up, make my way to the hospital and, and as a result of ministering at that time, don't spend my my time that I would normally spend in the Word of God, and I say to myself, okay, and I will, before the day's over, I'm going to be back in the Word of God. The exigencies of this situation demand that, that I really throw myself into ministering to people at this moment. I can't tell you the number of times when, now listen, if I put off the reading of the Scripture longer than necessary, suppose I say to myself, well, I'll just do it before I go to bed tonight. I can't tell you the number of times when I finally get to that moment before going to bed at night when I open the Bible and begin to read the Word of God, when I discover in it some very truths that I needed hours earlier. If I had only had them hours earlier. You see, the Word of God is like a compass 
in your heart. And if you want to be a man or a woman who gains victory over besetting sin, you're going to have to listen earnestly to God's clear instructions for your behavior. Number three, here's the third thing you need to do. Once you get that, you need to act upon God's Word. Now notice here, act without hesitation. Now friends, we're, going to, we're coming right this moment to a crucial truth. I hope the devil will not blind you to the truth that we're going to be looking at in these next few moments. Act upon God's Word without hesitation. Have you ever noticed, for instance, that uh, the Apostle Paul doesn't say to young Timothy, Timothy, when you begin to have thoughts of youthful lust, now you think about that carefully and graciously and quietly and carefully excuse yourself. He doesn't say that. He says, Timothy, the moment there is dropped into your heart a youthful lust, run from it. Flee youthful lust. So you must act upon God's word without hesitation. Look at verses 21 and 22. There we read that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. He made the sea dry land, the waters were divided and the children of Israel went up. Now listen, friend. If the children of Israel had waited, two things could have happened. First of all, they would have been uh, preyed upon by the Egyptians. Secondly, they would have had to fight the same waters that God intended to slaughter the Egyptians. The longer you wait to obey God, the harder it gets and the less likely you will. Let me say it again. The longer you wait to obey God, the more difficult it will be to obey Him and the less likely it will be that obedience will be your, your lifestyle. The children of Israel went up in the midst of the sea upon dry ground. The waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Do you know what the enemy's greatest tool in your life is? I believe this with all my heart. The, the greatest tool that the devil has in your life this morning. Now, he's probably not going to try to tell you that there's no God. There's some people that that uh, would uh, uh, really shake up. So he knows better than to try to tell you that. You're going to look at him and say, no, there's a God. He's not going to try to deny the reality of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's not going to do that because you know that's not only historically provable. Some of you know Christ by personal experience. So he's not going to try to get you to do that. As a matter of fact, he's, not going to even, he's even not going to tell you to disobey God. The devil doesn't tell you to disobey God. Not outright. Here it is. Put it up. The enemy's greatest tool is the encouragement of what he would call delayed obedience to God. The enemy's greatest tool in your life. You say, well, wait a minute. I, uh, I don't need to be reading this, but I think I'll read on a little further. Wait a minute, I don't need to be looking at this. I think I'll just look for just a few more. Just, just hold on. Wait a minute, I don't need to be with these people, but I think I'll just, I think I'll just, I think I'll just go tonight to that place. Just, just one more time with these people. Wait a minute, I don't need to be telling this, but well, I've started. I better just go ahead and finish the story. And all along, the devil's not trying to tell you that that's that it's wrong, that that's, that, I mean, that, that it's wrong to obey God. He's just telling you this, it's okay to wait to obey God. And the truth of the matter is, delayed obedience is the same as far as God's concerned as what? Disobedience. 
delayed obedience, as far as God is concerned, is the same as disobedience. And one of the reasons that so many of us have such a struggle with besetting sin, we have such a hard time overcoming, severing the grip of a sinful past, is that instead of running from it, the moment God confronts us with it, the moment that compass of God within us says, no, this is pointing in the wrong direction, is saying, well, let me just see. Well, let me just think about it. Well, let's just spend a few more minutes with this. Let me just contemplate this a little bit longer. And it's like quicksand. It begins to draw you in until ultimately you find yourself foundering. And yes, there's a way out. But you've been submerged in it, in that sin, I'm saying. You've been submerged in it for a period of time. And you can't do that without consequence. And so what do you do? You rejoice in your salvation. Then you receive God's word. Then you respond immediately. Let's look at the fourth thing. You reflect on the power of God over sin and renew your faith. Reflect on the power of God over sin and renew your faith. Now, for every adult here, you're going to find something in these next few moments that will absolutely astound you. If you are a parent or a student, this, this could just blow you away this morning if you'll see the power in what is being suggested to us through the Scripture here. To reflect on the power of God over sin and renew your faith. Look with me at verses 30 and 31. Thus, uh, thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And what did Israel do? They just plunge on ahead, never looking back and saying, don't know what happened back there, but God must have done something big. Is that what he did? No. The, the, the Bible says the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. They begin to think about this. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord. And his servant Moses, they said, we're even willing to receive the word of God through the hand of his servant Moses. Reflecting on the power of God over sin. Renewing your faith. Did you know that one of the greatest deterrents to following a path of sin is studying the end of those who have done so. One of the greatest deterrents to following a path of sin is studying the end of those who've done so. Listen, every sentence you begin is taking you somewhere. Every thought you entertain is a path taking you somewhere. Every activity that you're involved in is a path. It has an end. It's taking you somewhere. So the question you have to ask is this, where is this thought going to take me? Where is this path going to take me? Where is this conversation going to end up? You see, there, there is an end out there. And one of the greatest deterrents to sin is considering 
the end of people who have engaged in it. The children of Israel turned around and they looked out there on that Red Sea and there were pieces of chariots floating on the top and then bodies floating on the top and washing down through the current of the Red Sea. The shore was littered with bodies. Others were trying to scramble and get out on the other side of the, of the Red Sea. As a matter of fact, it is no wonder, it is no wonder that God had said to the children of Israel, you will see them again, for, not, not see them again forever. He said, I am permanently severing the grip. Uh, you are severed from the penalty of sin because you've come out of Egypt. You've been severed from the power of sin. Egypt has no more dominion over you. But from now on, I'm separating you from the practice of sin. It'll be a long time, you see, he said, before you will think that Egypt is better than following me. When our family was living in another town, I was pastoring a church there. We lived out in the country. A lot of our lives we have lived out in the country. And um, we had some neighbors not far from us. They had children somewhat the same ages as my own children. And um, one day something interesting appeared out in our neighbor's field. And it was, uh, it was a dirt bike and perched upon it was our neighbor's son, no problem. He was too young to be out in the street, way too young. He's a little large for his age, as a matter of fact, but, but um, you know, he couldn't legally drive that out on the highway. The laws were against that. And he was having fun out there, and, and uh, I, I had a little fun watching him, as a matter of fact. I was sort of jealous. I, I, uh, I thought, that, that, that looks like a lot of fun. In fact, I think I may have tried it a time or two. And, and of course, um, uh, my kids, you know, they wondered why the pastor's kids didn't have a dirt bike like, like everybody else's kids. And I said, well, you know, let me, just, let me just cogitate this. I was trying to think of some way to work that into my ministry. And I um, uh, didn't realize later on in Africa we'd have to have this kind of equipment. But uh, at any rate, there it was. Well, pretty soon I noticed something interesting. His son was riding that dirt bike not only, not only in the field, but he was riding it up and down the road out in front of our house, in his house. Now, it was perfectly legal. He could do anything he wanted to out there in that field. But you see, that road was a public thoroughfare. And there are laws in our state that say that young men could not, his age, could not ride a motorcycle on those highways. And so I went to this, uh, my, my friend, in fact, my, my kids, they wanted to know about this and how they could get involved in this. They, that, in fact, looked a little bit better to them than being out in the dirt, you know, the smooth Road out in front. So I went to him and I said uh, to him, he's a friend of mine, I said, uh, you know, I don't think that's a good example. Uh, letting him ride out here on the street, I said, he said, well, he's just going to be on our street. Just on our street. We had a little street there, about six or eight houses on it. He said, just going to be on this street. And uh, at supper that night, I said to my children, I don't, I called the man's name. I said, I don't think he loves his son very much. Well, that just blew them away. They said, hey, what do you mean he didn't love his son very much? He got him a dirt bike. You didn't get us a dirt bike, you know. Uh, I think he loves him. I said, no, because he's allowing him to do something that is against the law. 
And I said, you know, you never win. That, that's a path that'll take you to the penitentiary. You know how parents exaggerate things, you know? Well, riding that dirt bike out there in front of that house is going to take him to the pen. Maybe to an electric chair. Who knows? You know, you just don't have any idea. But it's going to take him to the pen. Because I said they're teaching him a disrespect for the, for the law. Time went on. It wasn't long before uh, dad, his dad was working on a car one day and he needed to part. And there was a, a shop about two miles down our country road from the house. And rather than get out from underneath the car and go to all the trouble, he said to his son, why don't you run down to the store? So now it wasn't just the little road, it was the two miles, but it was a country road. And so he, that actually got to be a little habit. It got to be more than just, you know, the ox in the ditch, the dad needs a part, go in the store. It was an every afternoon thing. Come home, get on the dirt bike, ride down the store a couple of miles away, get something, come zipping back at top speed, dirt bike, you know, is sort of, you know, like a, you know, washing machine engine or something like that. Just ring, sort of lying like a bee, but here he was going back, you know. And uh, you, could, you could hear him. That was, that was interesting, too. Uh, but at any rate, you know, now he's on the road. Um, and I said again to my children, I said, I don't think he loves his son very much because he's encouraging him to believe it's all right to break the law. Oh, Dad. Later on, when he had trouble in school, I was reminded of that. And then at an age when most of you students will be in college, he did spend time in the penitentiary. I really don't think his dad loved him very much to allow him to do that. And that experience was a... I'm happy to say that God rescued him and God's moved in his life in a remarkable way and he's living a life for Christ now and so are his parents. But, but I want to tell you something. Contemplating the end of that path was a deterrent to sin. As I begin to contemplate the end of that, and my children do, I promise you, they'll not be, they may be tempted, but they wouldn't think that it would be okay for their children to do something that is against the law. You see what I'm saying? So reflect on the power of God over sin. Renew your faith. Look at the end of those who've chosen a path of disobedience and the power of God to deliver you. Renew your faith, and you can sever the grip of a sinful past. Father in heaven, I pray, trusting right now, that in the moments that we spend together, your Holy Spirit now will move in this place. Lord, bring to this altar those who will receive Christ by faith, repenting of sin, trusting in Jesus for salvation. Lord, I pray you would bring to this altar those who want to sever the grip of a sinful past, who have wrestled with issues in their life for years and never seemed to have gotten victory. For those, Lord, who, for whom the simple truth is they've never truly been saved and they'll never have victory as long as they're dependent on what somebody else has told them and an experience they do not remember. Lord, I pray you would bring them to this altar this morning to receive you by faith as their Savior. Bring to this church, Lord, this morning those who would become a part of this church family. Help them to know that they will be welcomed and embraced with open arms of love. And I pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. While your head is bowed, 
while your eyes are closed, let me just say that what's going to take place in the next few moments is your personal invitation. It comes from God. It's to your heart. I'm going to verbalize it. But it is for you this morning. And I want to urge you this morning, I'm going to ask our counselors to come even now as I'm speaking. They'll be standing here at the front. When we stand in a few moments, our prayer warriors will be coming. I'm going to ask those who've made decisions in other services, and we need to introduce them. You've never been introduced to your church family. Maybe you joined last week and, or a previous week, and we've not introduced you. We try to be meticulous about this, but somehow you didn't get introduced to your church family. Come and be seated down here to your right where it says seating for new members. This is an invitation for you. But it's also an invitation for you if you would have to say, you know, preacher, God knows this is the truth. My problem is I've never truly been born again. I've tried and tried to overcome sin. I'm powerless at doing so. And you talk about where was it when I repented of sin, received Christ by faith. I, you know, I have only vague recollections of that. I realize it's such an important thing, and I'm not even sure that that's ever really happened to me. I just grew up thinking I was okay or grew up thinking I was a believer. And now I realize I must repent of sin and trust in Jesus as Savior. I want to do that this morning. I would urge you, young or old, make that decision without delay, without hesitation this morning. Make that decision. As God has spoken to you, make that decision. God in his love has somehow sent his Holy Spirit to convict you of that. Make that decision immediately when we stand this morning and when the choir begins singing. If God's speaking to you about joining this church, if God's speaking to you about severing the grip of past sin, I want to urge you to make your way to this altar. Find a counselor or kneel here at this prayer rail if you want to just pray to God during these moments. Your invitation to say, yes, God may be calling you to some ministry. Will you come and report for duty this morning? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Let's stand together. Father in heaven, I pray, trusting your Holy Spirit will be doing his work. Lord, we sense you already are doing your work. Now, Lord, those whose hearts you've stirred up to say, yes, I pray you would bring to this altar just now, Lord, and I pray it in Jesus' name.